Okay, um, there aren't too many of us yet. Hopefully there'll be a few more people decide to wake up this morning and join. Um, yeah, we almost make a quorum. No, we don't, we're under half. Ah, we made a quorum now, good. There we go, we're over, over halfway. Uh, I thought I'd entice you this morning with a little bit of uh, food. Try and get you uh, thinking along the lines of having reasonable snacks. I was just talking with Ethan and he does not like cashews. How many of the rest of you like nuts? Like, okay. Ethan, you're an outlier. Just thought I'd point that out. But uh, every once in a while you see things that are kind of interesting including the little fancy China bowl. I thought that was kind of a cool place setting, so I took a picture of it. But I like peanut M&Ms and I like cashews, so this was really good for me. It was kind of like, yeah, I could actually just have this for lunch, except it went with uh, an entire meal. But take pictures of stuff along the way. It's kind of fun. And all of those things have some protein in them. So now I uh, would estimate we need to talk a little bit more about proteins in dairy. And there actually are a few dairy proteins in those M&Ms, but not that many. So we'll have to get back to We were talking about interactions of dairy proteins, specifically the caseins at this point. I believe we left off on Monday talking about some of the interactions of beta casein, which is one of the four primary fractions of the caseins within milk. Beta casein is rather unique in its structure in that it has five serine residues in its primary chain, but those five serine residues are all found within the first 10% of the whole chain. And being serine residues, then they also are phosphoserines, so they attach a phosphate group. That makes this look sort of like uh, the head on a stick pin or the, the knob on the end of a knitting needle. The remainder of that beta casein has a very large proportion of proline molecules, which limits its ability to have any twists, any turns, anything else. It's very, very straight, almost pin-like. And so we have this structure that has a knob on the end and then it's straight as a pin. It has a hydrophilic end where those serines and the phosphate are and then the remainder is very hydrophobic. So if you imagine it, a beta casein similar to a knitting needle stabbed into a ball of yarn, out on the outer edges are the knobs of the knitting needles. 
going down into the center and perhaps passing through is the remainder of that beta casein. And that's really how it's going to be behaving in its interaction with the rest of the casein micelle. That interaction being hydrophilic and hydrophobic gives it some characteristics similar to an emulsifier. So it's able to help that overall casein micelle stay associated with the aqueous phase when it wants to, but also stay away from. And then the last thing I talked about was the fact that if you purify just the beta caseins or you purify casein in general and allow it to arrange itself, if you allow just beta caseins to arrange themselves, they will arrange end to end to end to end into a polymer about 22 units long, which is a nice long strand. It's almost like a string. But if you have a little bit of side branching with that, there's not a lot, you can create polymer sheets. You can essentially make plastic out of a casein, which is a food grade plastic, in the end biodegradable, because it is acted on by proteolytic enzymes, but it would have an ability to function at least in part like many other petroleum-based plastics. So it's something to think about. Historically, we did make some plastics out of casein. They went out of favor after World War II when petroleum became much more available. Perhaps now is the time since we seem to have an awful lot of plastic that doesn't have a way to go away to rethink how we make those plastics and whether making them from a substance like casein might not be a bad idea. And I think that's all the further I was on Monday. So now, moving on to the kappa casein interactions. Kappa casein itself, that fraction, about 13% of all the caseins, one in 10 basically, is not sensitive to calcium ions. That's hugely important in the way it's going to interact with the rest of the micelle and allow the micelles to interact with the rest of the solution, which is milk. Kappa casein does have a specific interaction with the alpha S1 fraction that enables it to protect that alpha S1 fraction from precipitation by extra ionic calcium that may be present within the overall solution, which is milk. There's calcium in milk, but it's bound in certain places and it's free in other places. The bound calcium is not our issue. That which is still free, mobile to move around in the solution, the ionic calcium can be the problem or the challenge that destabilizes the casein micelle. The kappa casein helps protect the alpha S, which is the largest fraction, 
from that ionic calcium. Part of what hooks together the whole micelle are these calcium phosphate bridges. Everywhere there's a serine, there's a phosphate. We can have a linkage together, two casein molecules cross-linked quaternary structure with a calcium phosphate bridge. If we take a process where we can extract phosphate from the solution, when we remove the phosphate groups, the kappa casein no longer has the capacity to protect all of the alpha S1. So the phosphate being there, creating the calcium phosphate bridges uses up some of the ionic calcium, enough of it that the kappa casein can provide that protection. But if we remove the calcium phosphate bridges, the kappa casein does not have the capacity to continue protecting all of the alpha S1 casein. So it has a finite amount of protection. The amount of phosphate that's bound appears to have a direct correlation as to how the kappa casein interacts with the alpha S1 to create some level of stability. All these interactions at play. So if we were to potentially change the pH of the solution, or if we put some other chemical substance in that would scavenge phosphate, we could change the stability of the protein fractions in milk. Those phosphate groups are stable at given pH ranges, but you can also sequester, scavenge, pull phosphate away using other chemical compounds. So it's important to know that that set of interactions can be occurring. So I keep mentioning this thing called a casein micelle. Casein micelles, like most biomolecules, tend to end up being spherical because when they achieve their lowest energy state, it's a lot easier to sort of fold in, make a nice compact small little ball than it is to maintain a molecule that's elongated, a flat sheet, straight as a pin. So the overall interaction of the alpha S1, alpha S2, beta, and kappa caseins together in this micelle end up being essentially spherical. Beta, like a stick pin, but in its interaction with their others, it sort of gets lost in there 
into what is essentially a sphere. This sphere is not very big. 0.04 to 0.3 microns. That's pretty darn small. When you think about a fat globule, and fat globules themselves are not very big, they are usually somewhere between one and 14 microns. To sort of run that comparison, if you like ratios, milk fat globules are anywhere from four to 400 times larger than an individual casein micelle. Seems kind of just an interesting comment to make. But when you make cheese, you create a destabilization of the proteins so they, they precipitate, they form a matrix. And that matrix of casein entraps or surrounds the milk fat globules. Well, if the milk fat globules are 400 times larger, it's going to be tricky to surround something, right? You're going to have to have a very complex network of those caseins creating the matrix to be able to hold on to all of those fat globules. So it's simple to say that the casein matrix surrounds the fat, but when the fat is up to 400 times larger, that's a little bit tricky to do. So we have to sort of try and keep that in our mind as to how we can have that type of interaction actually occurring. Even as small as the casings appear to be, 0.04 microns, they're still bigger than most, if not all, of the serum proteins. The beta-lactoglobulin, the alpha-lactalbumin. So when you start looking at the particles in milk, by far and away, the ones that are of any size that you're gonna be able to see are the fat globules. The casein micelles represent about 6% of the total milk volume. This gets a little tricky. One third of the volume is actually casein. And two thirds of the volume that is taken up is open spaces within that casein micelle that are hydrated or the water is able to penetrate into. But actual molecular amount of space, one third of the 6% or only 2% of all of the milk spatially is actually casein. But because the micelles are somewhat porous, they actually take up more space because they allow water to hydrate and be a part of that whole micelle. Does that make sense? 
So we keep coming back to this ratio. And if you don't have this ratio memorized by now, I'm thinking you will. Four to one, four to one. For every alpha S1, there's gonna be a beta. For every four alpha S1s, there should also be an alpha S2 and a kappa, right? Four to one, four to one. Does that mean that within the micelle, a mice, an individual micelle has four alpha S1s, one alpha S2, four betas, and one kappa? No. It means that in total, of all of those casein molecules together that create that micelle, the average ratio of them is four to one, four to one. But it's not that there's just four individual units. That, that would be difficult to create a nice sphere from. But when you start adding more and more of them on, you can fit them together such that they will create those spheres. In general, casein micelle, once it's there, is very stable. Within the normal temperature ranges that we consider in dairy process, micelles are stable. Down to freezing or zero degrees C, they're stable. Up to boiling, they're stable. Nothing really happens to them. They don't unravel, they don't degrade, they don't degenerate, they're stable. If we go below zero degrees C and we start to freeze them, we start to have some impacts. If we go well above the normal boiling point of 100 degrees C, we may begin to have some impacts, but that's really hard to do. We have to have a system which is highly, highly pressurized in order to get temperatures extreme enough to start to have an impact. Even at temperatures of 140 degrees C, which we would have when we're making a UHT type product, we still aren't high enough to be degrading them on the upper end. But if we go down to minus 20 degrees C in the freezer, we can start to tear them apart. But within the point where they're clearly in a solution, not in a semi-solid or in a vapor, they're stable. We can dry micelles. Well, that's good because we dry milk. We concentrate it, we've evaporated it down, we remove some of the moisture, we put it up in a dryer tower, we spray it in there, we remove even more moisture. In all of that process of removing moisture, we don't destroy the casein micelle. We dehydrate it. But as soon as we go and put water back into the system, 
it returns to its original structure. That's not true of everything. Lots of things, when you dry them and dehydrate them, you cannot rehydrate them back to what they were when they started. But a casein micelle will follow that pattern. Moisture removal, moisture addition back, returns to the basic micellular structure. So it's got some characteristics about it that are, that are kind of cool. Now, I know that some of you at this point are going, I'm not that excited about milk proteins. I'm really not that excited about chemistry. However, it still has some cool things, right? You'll figure it out someday. It may take you 20 years before you figure out, hey, this is really neat. But hopefully at some point you do. So some of those caseins have very distinct polarity, right? They have charge density associated with them, especially the alpha S2. There's also some distinct charge density with the beta casein. With the charges in different parts of the molecule, we get that net negative charge that allows there to be some level of repulsion casing micelle to casing micelle, pushing against each other, like two north poles on a magnet, that keeps them, or helps to keep them, suspended within the overall solution. There's also some steric repulsion from the fact that the kappa is basically on the outer edges of that micelle. But overall, we've got charge density, steric repulsion, allows us to maintain some colloidal suspension of the caseins within the solution. They're not dissolved, they do not dissociate. You can't put these protein molecules in the solution and have them completely go into the solution so that you could not recognize them. They're not, therefore, something that goes into true solution. But they are allowed to be stable because of their charges. That ties back, then, to that isoelectric point. When we change the pH of the solution to the isoelectric point, pH of 4.6, we take away that net negative. We hit the point where the net charge is zero. Steric repulsion, charge repulsion, insufficient to keep it suspended, and we initiate a precipitation. This is a quote from a gentleman who was a professor of dairy chemistry at Cornell for about 40 years, Dr. David Barbano. The micelle structure allows the dairy processor and the dairy chemist to make many different dairy products with very different physical characteristics 
because of the way the micelles interact with the other solutes and how they react to the conditions of pH, temperature, etc., within their environment. There's so many possible interactions that it allows us to make so many different varieties of dairy foods. And most of those varieties are dependent on the interactions of the protein fraction. Carbohydrate fraction doesn't do a whole lot except potentially be fermented. If we ferment it, we change the pH. The lipid fraction, it's either there or it isn't. It's emulsified in. But the whole of the structure of almost all those dairy foods depends upon how the proteins interact. So it can be a lot of fun to study. Dr. Barbano did it for 40 plus years. Um, so something to consider. So when we think about a lot of items in chemistry, we go back to how they're bonded or how things are held together. How is that carbon atom associated with a hydrogen? How is that nitrogen atom interacting with an oxygen or a hydrogen, right? What's the bonding structure that's going on? Are those bonds taking place such that they like to be in an aqueous environment? They like to be around water molecules? Or they'd rather stay as far away from water molecules as possible? Within the casein micelle, there's a lot of hydrophobic interactions going on. Segments of the primary strand of each of those individual caseins that have a distinct hydrophobic characteristic. And they'll pull together and associate with each other as far from the aqueous phase as they can. Monomers, dimers, clusters of the alpha, beta, kappa caseins will be attracted to each other in an attempt to create a nice tight space where very little water can interact with them. Now, if you remember back a couple of slides, roughly one third of a micelle spatially is actually the protein molecules themselves. Roughly two thirds of a Overall, my cell is actually water molecules. So the hydrophobic regions are going to pull together as much as they can to stay away from the water that's actually able to penetrate into the micelle along with being along the outer edges. It's not purely that the water is only on the outside of the ball. It's more like a sponge where it can also be inside instead of just at the surface.
but we have hydrophobic interactions occurring, trying to hold this thing together nicely. Most of those hydrophobic interactions are temperature dependent. As we increase the temperature of the solution, those areas that are hydrophobic tend to associate more closely to each other, which actually then will expel more of the moisture from the micelle. You warm up, we push the water out further into the serum and has less association with the micelles. As the solution cools down, the water is able to come back in. It's not just going to stay out there once we've warmed it up. It comes back when we cool it down. But it does move around because of how tight those hydrophobic interactions occur and whether or not they sort of squeeze that moisture out of the micelle or not, depending upon temperature. And that's exactly what that just said. Sometimes I get ahead of myself. I don't read the next slide very well. That level of hydrophobicity of not wanting to be associated with the water has a fair amount of impact on the overall stability of that micelle, okay? So we have to keep track of how that goes. There are clearly protein to protein bonds occurring. There are some electric static ionic interactions occurring. There may be negatively charged items, especially the carboxylic acid, positively charged, the amine groups. What's holding together that primary strand is electric static interactions, ionic bonds, where they're going to do their best to hold together. Probably they're there, right? We can't discount the fact that those types of bonds do exist. Ethan. So when you're, when you're cooking curd to make cheese, you warm it up, yes, which will cause some of that hydrophobic interaction. It'll pull in and it'll squeeze out some of that moisture. It also squeezes out whatever's dissolved in that moisture, which is lactose and minerals. As it cools down, it may reabsorb some water molecules, but it will not reabsorb the larger molecules like the lactose, the other things that may be there as a mineral within the whey. And it creates a more and more compact curd that also then allows those casein interactions to more associate just with casein instead of having something be in the way. 
I mean, every time there's a water molecule there, every time there's a lactose molecule, every time there's a citrate molecule, whatever it happens to be, it gets in the way of that casein to casein interaction to make that nice tight matrix, that curd structure. There is some hydrogen bonding, of course, but it's not of excessive importance in developing the structure of a casein micelle. The structure is more dependent on the level of the prolines, but not so much on strictly hydrogen bonds. Some localized intra and intermolecular inter interactions, but mostly of minimal importance. And since caseins themselves contain virtually no cysteines or sulfur-containing amino acids, there's very little opportunity for disulfide bonds to create part of that structure. Yeah, I go back and read it again, make sure I didn't miss something I was supposed to be telling myself. We all know there's calcium present in milk. At least I hope we do by now, right? Total calcium content in a skim milk. Well, we've removed the lipid fraction. We've gotten down to just basically we're dealing with the protein, carbohydrate, mineral portions in an aqueous solution is about 30 millimolar. Roughly 20 millimolar of that calcium is colloidally bound to the phosphate groups, the phosphoserines, making the calcium phosphate bonds within the casein micelles. So already two thirds of that calcium is bound just within the casein micelles themselves. Leaving then 10 millimolar calcium present within the rest of the entire solution, within dispersed throughout the serum phase. Many times that calcium is also associated with something. So in the end, what we get down to is roughly 10% of the total calcium that we start with is freely ionic and able to move around and interact with other substances within the solution. So what we're trying to do when we're looking at how kappa is protecting the alpha S and creating stability, we're really only worried about this three millimolar concentration. That shouldn't be so difficult to interact with. Now, if we want to force or make sure that we initiate 
a very good curd structure when we're going to make cheese, what do we sometimes add? We sometimes add calcium as calcium chloride to the vat before we run it set because we want to make sure that there's enough additional free calcium ions there to help us create a more rigid and firm curd structure that's going to maintain what we're looking for. And hopefully as it's forming that curd structure, harvest some more of that lipid and hold it in there nicely. But it's all dealing with that 3%, no, 10%, the three millimolar concentration of ionic calcium in the solution. The more calcium there is, the more likely we can destabilize the casein from maintaining its place within the solution. When we destabilize it from its place in the solution, it then comes out of the solution, precipitates, creates a matrix structure, which then is the coagulum that we cut and create curd. So if we want coagulum, we want to add calcium. If we don't want it to coagulate, we have to do something to keep that three millimolar of calcium from being able to react. So if we're going to make a UHT coffee creamer, we're going to put it in those little one ounce cups and they're gonna be shelf stable. You want that to remain liquid six months from now, right? You don't want it to set up and look like yogurt. In order to make sure that that does not occur, you have to sequester or put something there that will hold onto any of that free ionic calcium so it's not possible that it's there to react and initiate a gel formation in your final product. Sometimes you want it to gel, sometimes you don't. You want coagulation, you want a curd, or you don't. Depending on what you're looking for, how do we control that 10% of the total calcium in milk that is freely moving around So the calcium is distributed to the most part within the calcium phosphate bridges in the casein micelle. Two thirds of it, that's where it is. If you want to draw that out, go ahead. Just know that that's what we're talking about, the calcium phosphate aggregate. Two thirds of calcium in milk is in the caseins. One third is out there within the serum. Some of it's bound to things like 
the alpha-lactalbumin, one of the serum proteins. Some of it's there as calcium citrate, calcium phosphate, as a distinct molecule, and some of it is freely ionic. Our challenge overall is our ability to control or understand how that ionic calcium is able to interact with the caseins that we have. So I believe this is the last slide of the bunch. Summarizing the bonding within casein micelles, the interaction of the casein portions of the proteins, the most important reaction occurring is that reaction between the proteins, the caseins themselves, the alpha S1, the alpha S2, the beta, and the calcium that's present. The second most important set of bonds as we build this molecule are the intramolecular and intermolecular bonds, protein to protein. Are they very hydrophobic? Are we creating a localized areas where parts of each of the chains of the proteins don't want to be near the water molecules? Are we creating areas where there's some electrostatic interaction? Of much less importance in casein are the disulfide bonds and of the least importance, hydrogen bonds. That's not going to be true when we move to the serum proteins. We're going to change some of these order as far as which bonding forces have the greatest impact on the products we're dealing with. I believe I've come to the end of this set of slides. So on Friday, we'll move on to the next set of slides talking about models of what that casein micelle might look like and why it's been postulated that way. They've been discussing it, looking at it, proposing models, trying to come up with things that explain all the characteristics of what we, we believe is happening. And they've been doing that for 60 years. And they still are not absolutely settled on what gives us the best explanation. Maybe you will be the person who comes up with the model that ties all the parts together and makes it work. Also in that next slide set then is the discussion of the remaining protein fractions, which are the serum proteins. When we get to the end of that, we'll spend a day or so discussing process interactions of proteins, what we're impacting when we heat, what we're impacting when we change pH, all of those types of things before we get to another exam, which is probably at least another week and a half out. All right, done for today.